This time I'd like to invite uh, the youth forward to help uh, with uh, John, or, uh, John reading, John chapter 9. And as they're coming forward, I just want to uh, explain a little bit how we're going to do this reading. It's different uh, than we've done uh, before. So we've bro- I've broken this reading up into scenes, nine different scenes. It's a, it's a long reading. There's a lot of scenes here. And uh, the youth are going to uh, be uh, showing us an image, a picture from, this, uh, from each scene as we go. But I need some participation from you all. And what I need from you is uh, to trust me enough to close your eyes when I tell you and then to open them again at the end of the reading. So the way it's going to go is I will say uh, scene one and I'll read the title of the scene and I'll ask you to close your eyes. And then I will read through the scene, and at the end of it, I'll ask you to open your eyes, and you'll see the, the poses that the, the youth have set up as they're, uh, to give you an idea of that. And then I'll have you close your eyes again, and I'll go on to the next scene and open your eyes again. Does that make sense? Any questions? If you really don't want to close your eyes, I guess you don't have to, but it'll be better if you do. So, the Holy Gospel according to John chapter 9. Scene 1. The disciples ask Jesus about the blind man. Close your eyes. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but in order that God's works might be revealed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Open your eyes. And close your eyes. Scene two, Jesus heals the blind man. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. Open your eyes. And close your eyes. Scene three, the people are confused. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, it's someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and spread it on my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Scene four, the Pharisees question the blind man. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes. Then I washed, now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man's not from God. He does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, he is a prophet. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Scene five, the Pharisees questioned the blind man's parents. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. 
Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Scene six, the Pharisees questioned the blind man again. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here's an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God... He could do nothing. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Scene seven. The blind man is driven out. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are trying to teach us. And they drove him out. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Scene 8, Jesus finds the blind man. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Open your eyes. Close your eyes. Scene 9. Jesus confronts the Pharisees. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. Open your eyes. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see things as they truly are. Open our ears to hear your mercy. Amen. Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you've been keeping track of our progress as we move through the Gospel of John, you may have noticed that we are skipping a bit ahead with this story. Last Sunday, we were in chapter 4, and Jesus had paused in Samaria on his way north to Galilee after celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. Well, more than a year has passed since that last reading, and Jesus has continued to teach in and around Galilee while making his way uh, to Jerusalem for the major holy, uh, holy days. 
And some of Jesus' most famous miracles have happened in this time. He's healed uh, an official son from a distance. He's healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years, a lifetime in those days. Uh, he's uh, fed a crowd of 5,000 with just five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, he's walked on water in order to catch up with his disciples as they rode across the Sea of Galilee. All of these miracles, as well as Jesus' teaching, well, they're resulting in Jesus drawing more and more followers. But as his popularity with the people grows, so too does the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders who are already looking for an excuse to arrest him. In fact, in chapter 8, the verses right before our reading today, Jesus calls the religious leaders children of the devil. They then call him a Samaritan who has a demon, and then they take up stones to kill him. So yeah, things are a little tense. And it's this tension that forms the background for our story today. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's just slipped out of the temple after the leaders have attempted to stone him. And as he and his disciples are walking along, the danger now behind them, they come across this man who has been blind from birth, begging in the streets. As I mentioned earlier, this is not the only time that Jesus heals someone who is blind. I I did a quick search through the four Gospels and found uh, stories detailing the healings of seven other blind men throughout the uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Luke at one point mentions that Jesus heals or uh, gives sight rather to many other blind people whose stories are not told. So while there are many stories to choose from of Jesus giving sight to the blind, John, for whatever reason, chooses to tell only one. And as he tells it, you get the sense pretty quickly that this is not just a story about the healing of a blind man. This is not just a story about physical blindness. I want to point out a theme that runs through this reading, and uh, actually even into the next chapter. I I mentioned earlier that uh, our reading stops, and Jesus actually keeps on talking for quite a while, Uh, and we'll hear that on Ash Wednesday. That's kind of part two of our reading uh, for today. But there's a theme that runs through this, uh, and it's this theme of uh, hearing and seeing, of the proper relation between hearing properly and seeing properly, of hearing uh, things, listening to the right person, and seeing things as they actually are. I mean, I don't know if you've thought about this uh, before, but these two senses, hearing and sight, they bring with them two very different ways of being in the world. I mean, our sight, with our sight, we tend to be focused and active. We, when we really want to understand something, we use our vision to study it, right, to analyze it. And if the object of our attention is something in the room we can look at, then we simply stare at it, we peer at it. Uh, but even if it's not something we can look at it directly, maybe it's an idea or something that's too far away to see, well, we still use our eyes. We turn our eyes now not to the thing itself, but to books or to articles, and we study in that way. When I look at something, when I observe it with my eyes, well, I'm in control for the most part. I mean, I can adjust, I can try and find a better angle to see, and if I don't like what I see, well, I can simply close my eyes or look away. Hearing, listening, it's entirely different. I don't really get to control what I hear in the same way. I mean, sure, I can cover my ears or leave the room, but even then, my ability is limited, especially if the thing I don't want to hear is another person talking to me. 
mean, if you've ever been in one of those traveling arguments that starts in one room and then moves throughout the house as one person tries to convince the other of his point, I say his intentionally, it's usually his in our house, then you know how hard it can be. And on the other hand, if there is something I really want to hear, I'm probably going to have to wait for it. I can't simply turn my ear differently to hear something else or fast forward my conversation to get to the part that I like. I have to wait for the other person to say it, to speak it. I mean, this is oversimplified, of course, but when I listen, I put myself at the mercy of the one who I listen to. However, when I look, I'm the judge of what's worth seeing and what's not. In our story today, everyone except for this blind man is operating on the basis of sight. And yet no one, with the exception of Jesus, is seeing things as they actually are. Our reading opens with Jesus seeing this man who is blind by birth, and apparently the disciples notice him too because they immediately begin to ask Jesus, who is at fault for this man's situation? You see, the common understanding at that time, and it still holds strongly today, was that suffering only comes to people who have done something to deserve it in some way. And so for a person who's born with a life-limiting disability, as this man was, the assumption was that either he had somehow sinned in utero or that his parents had sinned and he was suffering the consequence. And so the disciples pose this question to Jesus, and by doing so, they reveal their own blindness. For when they look at this blind man begging in the street, they don't actually see him. They don't see him as the object of God's love, which he is, but rather as a theological puzzle, something to be solved. They don't so much look at him as they look through him to some supposed deeper meaning or mystery about the world. He is not in their viewing really a person so much as he is an opportunity for them to expand their knowledge. But Jesus, we read, sees him. Jesus recognizes him as the recipient of God's restorative grace. Rather than attribute blame to this man or to his parents, Jesus instead stays in the present, focusing on the work that is to be done for him. Just a quick note, if you ever open uh, your Bibles or read through this story, uh, on verse 3, there's a difficult translation there. Jesus' response to the disciples about why this man is born blind, well, it's ambiguous in the Greek. And in order to make it clear, a lot of English translations, including our Pew Bibles, they insert some words that aren't actually there in Greek to try and make the sentence make more sense. So if you opened up your Pew Bibles and you looked at verse 3, you'd see that Jesus' response is translated this way. He says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. But those words, he was born blind, those actually aren't there. They don't appear in the Greek. The way our Bibles have translated it, uh, the meaning here is that God caused or, or at least permitted this man to be born blind so that Jesus could come along and use him as an object lesson later in life. But an equally possible translation of Jesus' response, one that I personally find preferable, is this. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but in order that God's work might be revealed in him, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. And he goes on to talk about night and the light of the world. 
Or in other words, don't worry about the cause. Let's do God's work now while we have the opportunity. Like I said, they're both possible translations, but I want to point this out. I want to mention this because this passage gets referred to often as a sort of way of proving that anything that happens to someone is God's test for them or is God's lesson for them. And while God certainly works through suffering when it happens, I don't think we can simply say that every bit of suffering was caused by God for a reason. So that's why I point that out. Anyway, the story goes on. The formerly blind man, he's interrogated repeatedly by the crowds then by the Pharisees. And as this happens, their blindness is revealed. Even though the proof is standing there right before their eyes, they cannot see this miracle for what it is. For rather than giving glory to God for this miraculous gift of sight, they are blinded by their focus on the law of all things, on the uh, commandments given by Moses. They insist on being judges of all they see, of, of determining for themselves who is worthy and who is not. And this has blinded them from recognizing Jesus, the one actually by whom the world is judged. Jesus here performs a miracle that is unheard of. And rather than celebrate, they focus on one detail. They can see only that he broke the Sabbath commandment by making mud. He spit on the ground, mixed it together, and used that to heal a man who had been blind from birth. And all the Pharisees can say is, well, that breaks the, uh, the third commandment. Talk about missing the forest for the trees. Not only are they blind to the truth, but in their insistence that they can see, they multiply their evil. Because rather than celebrating this man's restoration to community, they excommunicate him. They ban him from worship in the temple, in the synagogue. They cut off all fellowship with him. And Jesus, at the end of the story, is proved very right when he says, if you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, we see, your sin remains. Because finally, the difference between this man and the Pharisees, it's not a matter of law. It's not, as the Pharisees think, that the blind man is a sinner while the Pharisees are free from sin, nor as it as we might be tempted to think that the blind man had some hidden virtue, maybe a loving heart, perhaps, while the Pharisees were enamored with power and status. No, what finally separated this man from the Pharisees was that Jesus sought him out to heal him and that he simply listened. He simply heard rather than protesting that he was not in need of healing. If there's a simple truth to take away here, perhaps it's this, that the only thing which truly separates us from God is our insistence that we are not separated from God. In other words, it's not the number or the degree of our sins which keep us from Christ, but rather our blind insistence that we have no need of him. So let me lay it out for you simply. Whether you are an outcast or one of the elite whether you are filled with love for your neighbors or you despise them, whether you are a prayer warrior or you have never truly prayed a day in your life, you are all united in this. You are not enough. You are not what you ought to be. You're not even what you possibly could be. Even if trying our best was enough, and it's not, by the way, I don't believe there's a person in this room who has actually tried their best, and I include myself in that judgment. Like the Pharisees, the disciples, the man born blind, the crowds, you and I are not enough. And while that may be a bitter pill to swallow, while it may be an affront to our idolization of self-esteem, 
if you can accept it, it brings with it deep freedom. For no longer do you need to be enough. No longer do you need to determine where the lines are, what's a minor misstep and what is unforgivable sin, because you already know that on your own you cannot make it. There is no longer any point to measuring up. Because the great miracle, the great reversal, is that Jesus Christ has seen you as you truly are, inadequate and rebellious, and yet he is even now drawing near to you, taking your inadequacy upon himself and covering you with his sufficiency. Don't put your trust in what your eyes can see, judging who is worthy and who needs to be left out. But instead, listen. Listen to the voice of your God, who in your baptism claimed you as his own. You are my chosen beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This word of God is what defines you. This God-given identity is sufficient for you. You can rely on it. You can act in it. You can trust in it. You can live from it. For God has spoken, and there's nothing more to fear. God's grace is indeed sufficient for you, and God's mercy overcomes your need. Amen.